The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode, we sit down with David Moritz. If you remember, I was at the editor's retreat last week, and during that time, they had David Moritz come by, they had Arthur Schmidt come by and give talks about their approach to cutting. So I was lucky enough to meet David Moritz, and we sat down by the ocean and discussed, well, pretty much everything from uh, his days in punk bands. We talked about getting into the film industry, and about Richard Marks, who is his father-in-law, but also his influence in editing and one of his mentors in editing. So enjoy part one of my interview with David Moritz. I'd actually love to start talking to you about your punk bands because I was into punk bands oh, really? in the 90s and I was wondering if you could well, tell me about your... I'll tell you, we started in 1977 in Los Angeles and we called ourselves Hardball and uh, we weren't really into punk then. We were more into music like the Blasters and um, sort of American... They called it rockabilly, but it was much more amped up. And the drummer in that band was from uh, San, uh, from Doug Somm, and they did the song, uh, uh, She's About a Mover. Do you know that song? She's About a Mover. It's a 60s song, classic song. And the bass player was this uh, Hispanic fellow, Jimmy Balbano, Jimmy Valente, I can't remember. And he played in a band called T-H-E-E, The Midnighters, and they were like the seminal East L.A. band. So we were kind of like this little great mix. And uh, we did that for a couple of years and played around town and couldn't get a deal. And Los Angeles at the time was very unfriendly to unsigned bands or, you know, you played yeah. for the gate. So you had to pay to play, basically. Well, and I heard there's like, uh, the way it used to work, there was bars behind the, yes. the, the sure. strip. Well, there were small little, uh, you know, like one of the, my favorite places to play was the uh, 1920s hotel on um, Hollywood Boulevard that, that I think has been since raised or changed. and in the downstairs sort of area was a bar lobby kind of thing and you just set up on the floor and kids came so the the new wave punk people would carve out certain spots that they called their own and uh, there were a few of those bars one that i really liked to play was called the club 88 on pico where we played with the blasters a lot and uh, they were small clubs but uh very intense atmosphere because it was you know tight so we weren't punk enough to be on the same axis like the Germs and yeah, Black Flag, uh, Black and Flag guys, yeah. um, Circle Jerks. Uh, and also, I, to be honest, those crowds were they so were violent and yeah. the, the spitting was so yeah. revolting. Yeah. But it was a big deal. But the thing about the punks that nobody, I think, really knows or, or thinks about is that just like the big hair bands, they were incredibly competitive. They had their camps, and when you went on and their camp was there, they tried to shout you down. And I watched a, a bunch of the L.A. people try to do that to Paul Weller in the jam. And, of course, they would have none of it. They were British punks who would take whatever you wanted to throw at yeah. them. And they played even more ferociously. <laughs> so then we kind of evolved uh, away from more um, 
what we used to call eighth note music, dun 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 dun, yep. you know all that, and started playing more uh, rhythm and blues based kind of stuff. And that's when we moved to New York. And uh, I can tell you, you played CBGBs. We did. <laughs> played CBGBs. It's gone and, now. Yeah, and there was a place right next to CBGBs that if you couldn't get in CBs, you could play. It was called Great Gildersleeves, right yeah. down the block. And it was actually a nicer stage, but didn't have the cachet. There were a few of them. One place called Tracks Uptown, and um, so we kind of evolved into playing more rhythm and blues, and that just drove the crowds crazy, especially the uh, most crowds. Because if you play a James, James Brown song to them, they may want to think it's hip, but they're probably there with their friends and uh, probably can't. So we had our little cadre of uh, my favorite song from back then. And you know what? I'll send it to you someday. Embarrass myself. It was called New Surfers. And it was a very fast, grandiose uh, guitar line thing and um, where you shouted the lyrics. And that was fun. Yeah. Did you ever play in Toronto? I did not. We tried oh, okay. so hard. So I was wondering if you played the Alma Combo. Did it have a sister club in San Francisco? Uh, I don't know. It's pretty legendary oh, in Toronto. Oh, of course. No, everybody yeah. knew about the Alma Combo. And so, and we got to play there once, and we were like, this is oh, amazing. Oh, great. And yeah. Of course, our band was terrible. But <laughs> no, no. But, <laughs> but that you was know, the fun, right? It's look, like, uh, just like um, actors, 90% of the musicians who play play several years, don't. that doesn't become your profession. Or you know how they say this about American college football players? Yeah. They're all big stars. How many of you are actually going to play in the NFL? Yeah. So it's that music is exactly that. Yeah. You know, if you get into the big leagues, um, and you're rewarded with it, it must be a wonderful thing. And then a confounding thing because every one of those bands, I mean, I, for me to say that I'm not interested in a new U2 record, nor have I been in many years, is kind of extraordinary because I thought they were everything. Yeah. And now you're like, I don't know if I want to hear a 55-year-old guy who flies in jets to Cannes and. What do you have to talk about? And for them, I'm sure that's a problem. And as you said about Motown, my closest friend in high school, and Stuart, very close to me, uh, he lives in Ventura, California. I live in L.A. His uncle co-founded Motown Records with oh, wow. Barry Gordy. So when we were kids, all of 17 in Detroit, Barney Alis is his name, wonderful guy, would get us uh, tickets to go see the various acts. That would have been amazing. And so, <clears throat> I can't tell you how many times the only two little white boys walking into a club in Detroit, <laughs> but because it was for the music, um, we didn't really get hassled. We did a few times, but boy, we saw all those great acts, Temptations and James Brown and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, all of them. It was uh, wonderful. When you were in Gil um, California, did you play in Gilmore Street ever? No. Because there's a club on there that's like as of around 87, it became sort of like a hub for... Is it punk. in LA? No, I think no. it's in the Bay area. Yeah, no, you know, we played in the Bay area. There, I'm trying to remember the place we played it. It was a very uh, iconic place that, it, uh, Mabuay Gardens is what it was called. We were on the same uh, list that night as uh, one of San Francisco's favorite bands, The Nuns at the time. And uh, they had the whole crowd going. And they were actually quite good. They were, they were odd and strident and I guess we were a little too melodic for that San Francisco crowd. Jello Biafra and the gang up there, you know, they were uh, they were much more about confrontational art music. Yeah. And we more like, uh, hey, here's a James Brown song. And they were like, what <laughs> the hell? So how did you transition from punk rock to... Uh, I was to living in New film? York with my wife, or my girlfriend, came became my wife. And uh, I was had gone from playing in the band to uh, being disenchanted with not having any money and started working at this iconic record store in New York called King Carroll on 42nd and 6th. And uh, it's back in the days when it was just a 
giant vinyl empire. Mm -hmm. And they carried everything. They carried these old folksways like blues and, and slave records all the way to the most contemporary one, which at the time, I guess the biggest one in there was Thriller. Yeah. So the exposure to all that vinyl and all that music was great. And I loved working there. And I met um, a fellow named Stephen Bray, who is still a dear friend of mine, and went on to write Into the Groove for Madonna. And oh, wow. So we were compadres back then. And a dear friend of the guy who was managing us worked at City College and then got, a, I mean, uh, was going to school at City College, did a film there called Incident in the Park. And I remember going to watch him edit it and then putting the music to it. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I think this is a cool thing to do because I wasn't necessarily a film aficionado and I sure didn't go to film school, but the juxtaposition of it was very cool. And I thought, man, I'm not gonna be a fucking singer my whole life and I'm not gonna make no money. So, uh, he let me take part in the editing with him. At that point, I was convinced I should be a music editor. It is then that my wife's father, the great Richard Marks, as I told you, edited Apocalypse Now, Broadcast News, Serpico, oh my goodness, uh, go, the list goes on and on. Terms of endearment, as good as it gets. We decided to get married, and um, he said, come back to Los Angeles, and if you're interested, I'll try to get you into the business. Yeah. So I got in as a music uh, apprentice, which is a decidedly unglorious way to start. And it's a very different thing. It's very hard to explain to you, but everything was on 35 millimeter film, even the sound. So it was a very cumbersome task. Well, it's funny because I used to, uh, I used to have an inner cine and it had the sound oh, uh, yeah, so you sure. could read the strips along the yep. side. And... So it was all about when you were an assistant and an apprentice, like working with these, what they would call units. And it was, uh, yeah. so with music, you kind of built them up and all that. And as I said in the speech, I worked my way up to, um, music editor finally in that company after a couple years. And even in television on the show St. Elsewhere, I just thought, I, you know what, I, as I said, I'm not musically sophisticated enough. I can't read music nearly well enough as these guys who look at charts and go, hey David, we're gonna go in on this bar and come out. And I'm just kind of like, what? So it was, you know, a career decision. And uh, at that point I said, no, I'm gonna circle back because I, in, in, during that time, a music editor and the music assistant and apprentice and the sound people and the film people, you're all kind of in the same gang. So you could see the film people and you saw what they were doing. It's not like you were insulated from it, sitting at a Pro Tools in your own office now. Yeah. So uh, I started over and worked my way through uh, what was a really great system that had been perfected over 100 years of filmmaking or 80 years of filmmaking. And that is that you went from being an apprentice to a second assistant to a first to maybe an associate editor and on to editing. And it was a very, um, uh, a great system set up for those who, when you were ready to make the move and were lucky enough to be successful, could uh, make that move. And I'll tell you, Wes Anderson, you're across that ocean right now. <laughs> um, congratulations on your bathtub. Thank you for hiring me for Bottle Rock. Well, so you mentioned uh, Richard Marks. Yes. What did you learn from him that you use in your- Everything I know. Truthfully, uh, Making a movie back then involved the director sitting in a chair, maybe not in the first cut, but if I uh, remember I explained about these movieolas next to each other. And like in an Avid where you preview your shot in this monitor and then cut it in on that one, basically you previewed it in here and you cut it into the film and then it kind of rolled along in sync until you put it on a Steenbeck or a cam flatbed <coughs> and then watched the film reel by reel. So essentially I was there for several years of basically handing him his next idea and watch how he crafted a film and to my great luck, Richie was um, 
a drama comedy guy and was intensely talented and still is at the, the dialogue editing of it all. Mm -hmm. And he had assisted Dee Dee Allen, who had done movies like Bonnie and Clyde and, yeah. you know, The Hustler and <laughs> amazing movies. So he learned from the best and I got to learn from the best. And I've always carried his, um, now we may not necessarily have the same editing rhythms, mm -hmm. But uh, I did always carry with me the importance of dialogue and how in a mix, Richie would say, dialogue is king. I don't care how cool that fucking song is. Yeah. You, if you don't hear the movie and you don't understand what's happening, you're not gonna invest in it. And that holds true to this day. Great guy, yeah. smart guy, intense guy. Not always the nicest man, <laughs> but he's my father-in-law. So uh, um, I was lucky to come in. And, and you know, the only other thing I'll say about that is that very early on, when you're faced with somebody who has his credits, yeah. You're kind of already conditioned to say, I'm never going to reach that level yeah. of um, scripts and directors and uh, Hollywood in the 70s was a golden time. And <clears throat> so I was already kind of set up to say, no, but I think I can make a living at it. Yeah. Maybe not do these movies, but... And I guess that open, like it releases you in a sense. Amazing. Because it's just like, okay, well... It I'm not really gonna... does. You can love what he does and take everything that... Be lucky enough to learn from it. And if you never get the Academy Award, you know, he's been nominated, I think, four times and never won to, to the, the Academy's shame. But for me, you just realize, okay, I'm going to take what's out of this, and um, I'm still married to his daughter, and uh, we have our own kids, and I made a life out of it, so I'm grateful. So that was part one of my interview with David. Now, in the coming episodes, we're going to discuss things like meeting Wes Anderson and starting to cut Bottle Rocket, as well as working with Judd Apatow and, and all these other amazing directors that he's worked with. So make sure to check back for part two. And we're also planning to be at NAB again this year. So if you're planning to go to NAB this year, make sure to contact us and let us know you're going to be there. Maybe we can grab a beer with you guys. You can get us at info at AOTG.com. You can always get us on Twitter at AOTG Network. And of course, you can always get us on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. This episode was cut by John Passover. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.